Why don't you pray with me before we get into God's word? Father, uh, we're eager to, to come under your word this morning. And my prayer would be, Lord, that you would come and make us meek like Jesus. Give us a meekness like the Savior. Teach us what that means as we go through your scriptures. Illuminate that to us. But not just that, Lord. I would pray that you would um, awaken us to the spiritual reality of the war that is being waged for the souls of men. So through the power of your spirit, come and illuminate the text that you have written for the glory of your son and for our benefit. In Christ's name, amen. Arguably one of the most traumatic experiences for those of us who are raised in the uh, digital technology age is the day that our parents got smartphones. And then God help us got on Facebook. See, social media used to kind of be like uh, the movie theater when you were in middle school where your parents could drop you off from the parking lot, then you would go, and it was just you and your friends. They could look on if they wanted from the parking lot, but they definitely... Um, and then one day you logged on, and you saw that you were being tagged in pictures of you when you were... Well, let's just say you didn't want them in front of the entire world, but you had no choice, such as this, if we have that. I didn't agree to that. In fact... I feel like that's actually defamation. Lori would be able to tell better than me, but that's my reading of the law. I didn't agree for that to be put on the world to see. And so our parents got smartphones, and uh, we had to scurry around and start to undo all the posts we had done from years before. They breached the perimeter, and we sent out an air raid alarm to all of our friends, and that whole thing. And then after a while, we got used to communicating with them through emojis and texts, and it's always going to be a little awkward, right? But it's, it's a little better than it used to be. Well, this week uh, marked a landmark in my relationship with my father. Uh, I think for the first time, he found something on Facebook and then texted it to me, and it got a legitimate LOL from me. Uh, and this was the picture that he sent me. Now, if you can't read it, it says this. If anyone ever asks you what would Jesus do, remind them, that flipping over tables and chasing people with a whip is within the realm of possibilities. <laughs> right? Now, this story, of course, comes from John 2, where Jesus goes to the temples and he sees all the merchants there taking advantage of pilgrims who had come to worship at the temple, and so he goes crazy and starts flipping over the tables. Well, what in the world does this have to do with our text today? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you asked. It shows us that we need to have a a fully formed theology that encapsulates the meekness of Christ, but some of the harder sayings in the Bible. We need to realize that hard words does not necessarily mean hard hearts, because our text today begins with this verse. Paul says, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. And then our text ends with this verse. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. So how does that work? Meekness and gentleness, and then the weapons of our uh, warfare, right? 
We need a theology that doesn't see these as mutually exclusive. So before we jump in the text today, let's take a step back and catch where we're at in the context of the letter. Because admittedly, this is an abrupt change. If you've been with us uh, for the whole year, we've been in 2 Corinthians. But over the last five weeks, five to six weeks, we've been in a section where he's talked about giving a lot. Um, It was specifically called the Jerusalem Collection, where Paul was raising funds for And then he turns seemingly on a dime today and goes to this. So so what's going on here? Well, if you were here from the beginning, you'll see that Paul's actually going back to his initial argument, the entire reason that he wrote the letter of 2 Corinthians. Namely, he's defending his his authority or a representative of Christ. That's the main reason Paul wrote this letter of 2 Corinthians, was to defend his authority. Now, that might seem kind of self-seeking, but if you weren't raised in the church, you need to understand what an apostle is. Um, The reason that we give weight to these letters that men wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is because they are what we call apostles. And apostles were men who had been with Jesus and seen him in the flesh, and then were commissioned by Jesus to speak on behalf of Jesus. This is apostolic authority, and this is why we care what Paul says, not because we want his opinions, because when he speaks, Jesus speaks. And so the reason he's defending this authority is not because he wants to lift high the name of Paul, but he is jealous for the Corinthians not to abandon the gospel that he had proclaimed to them. He is desperate for Corinthians not to turn their back on the gospel because false teachers had to undermine his ministry. And so Paul need to come back and argue for his apostolic Like many of you here, I'm sure, uh, I'm a fan of Lord of the Rings. And if you've seen the trilogy, you'll remember one of the more touching scenes where, where Frodo sends Sam away. See, Sam was Frodo's most faithful friend. He was his most faithful servant. But then another guy came on the scene named Smeagol, who started to undermine Sam and breathe lies to Frodo about goodness. And there's this really touching scene where Frodo can go home. There's nothing else you can do for me. And through tears, Sam says, but he's poisoned you against me. He's lied to you about me. And this is kind of the position of Paul. He had been poisoned by these so-called super apostles to the Corinthians. And so Paul, like a loving pastor, is pleading with them to remember that he loves them and cares for them. This is essentially painful here. So if we are to understand his heart behind what he is saying, we need to understand his pastoral care for them. Because some of the words start to get pretty tough. We're about to wade into some of Paul's most uh, polemical or argumentative language as in all of his letters. But he starts off by saying, I'm appealing to you. I beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. So Paul's not seeking to get a pro-Paul party. He's not seeking to get fame for himself. He's seeking to reestablish their confidence in the gospel that he brought to them. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 1, we see that a pro-Paul party and Paul's first response was to immediately quell that. He says in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, It has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you. 
my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, well, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? See, Paul's not trying to get a pro-Paul following. He's trying to get their eyes fixed again on Jesus Christ and the gospel that he proclaimed under his power. So this is where we're at. It's in this context that we begin with, Paul, myself, entreats you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. So this begs the question, then. What is Christ-like meekness? What is Christ-like meekness? What is this meekness that can say he's trying to be gentle, but then talk about warfare and the weapons of our warfare? What is this meekness that can make a whip in a temple from time to time? And specifically, given the fact that Paul is prefacing some harder words, we need to ask ourselves, what does meekness look like in the context of conflict? Well, I have three thoughts on what Christ-like meekness looks like. And this is an important question, too, because Jesus Christ himself said in Matthew 5, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. So the first part of the sermon today will be on answering this question, what is Christ-like meekness? And the first thing I would say is meekness humbly submits to God's word. That's the starting place for meekness. It humbly submits to God's word. So what I want to do is show these from 2 Corinthians and then go over to the Gospel of John and see if we see a parallel in the life of Christ. 2 Corinthians 4.2, Paul makes this point. He says, We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Paul says, we refuse to tamper with the truth. The meek person knows that there is objective truth. See, some people see meekness as just not wanting to to ruffle feathers or wanting to just kind of be self-deprecating. But this is not actually the posture of of meekness at all. It's, it's, It's not meek to say, whatever you believe is fine, and whatever I believe is fine. That's not meekness. That's actually pride. Because it's saying there is no ultimate authority that any of us will answer to. So whatever you think is fine, and whatever I think is fine, that's not meek. That's pride. But meekness says there is an objective authority, and I'm not it. I come under the authority of God. And not only do we see God's word as, as authoritative, but the word actually has its proper humbling effect on us first. And so we don't wield God's word like a sledgehammer but we present God's word like bread for hungry people, realizing that we're all beggars. When we come under God's word, it should humble us. And so you can be meek and say, yes, there is an authority. I'm not it. It's actually God's word that is the authority. And even the scriptures tell us that Christ, though he himself was the very word of God, the Greek conception of the logos, When he was on this earth, he humbly submitted to the Father. John 14 says, this is Jesus speaking, Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Meekness knows there is 
and it humbly that authority. The second thing that meekness is, according to what I would say is a biblical portrait of it, meekness never separates love for the truth with love for the person. Meekness never separates love for the truth with love for the person. You know, it is possible to be right and to be very wrong. That exists. You can be right and be very wrong in the way that you are technically right. And this is why online debate is typically so incredibly unhelpful. Because it is so uncharitable. And it quickly descends into an ugly back and forth because all you care about is making your point. You could care less about the person you're engaging with because you're sitting behind a keyboard and don't have to look into the eyes of another human soul, another image bearer of God. And so it exposes our fallen inclination to desire to be right at the expense of someone else's dignity. That's not meek. Meekness never separates love for the truth with love for the person. And though Paul does have some hard things to say, he does it out of love for the Corinthians as a pastor. He never separates the truth that he has to say to them with his love for the church. We see this in 2 Corinthians 13. This is at the end of our epistle. Paul says, For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. I can't do anything against the truth, but I'm glad when you are strong if I'm weak. I'm for you. I'm for your restoration. This is meekness. Love for the truth and love for people. A humble commitment. And of course, Jesus Christ is our perfect example of what meekness looks like. In John 1, it said he came full of grace and truth. This is a beautiful recipe for the Christ-like meek heart, full of grace and truth. And a couple of chapters later in John 4, we see this played out. It's a, it's a very famous story of the woman at the well. See, Jesus was making a journey from Judea to Galilee, and it says that he stopped in Samaria because he was very tired. And he stopped at a well. At about noon, a Samaritan woman came, and Jesus asked her, if she would get him a drink, now this might not seem very strange on the surface, but if you'll remember last week, Samaritans and Jews did not like each other. They hated each other at a very deep level. And on top of that, for a man to engage a Samaritan woman would have been highly uncommon. But this is exactly what Jesus does. He engages this woman because he looked through the eyes of, of love and compassion. And though he said that he would like some water from her, he quickly switches the, the story and tells her, actually, not only that, but you really need water from me. If, if you drink this water, you will thirst again, but I have a type of water where you will never thirst again. But then he doesn't stop there. Jesus knows that he needs to engage at a deeper level. And we see this in John 4. It's a very bizarre transition in this conversation. It says, Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying that I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now, why did Jesus say this to the woman? 
What did this have to do with giving her living water? Well, the truth is it had everything to do with living water. Because Jesus is the truth. And he means to eradicate all of our darkness. And so coming to him means exposing the truth first. So Jesus was not going to let this uh, conversation remain surface. But he lovingly points to the truth. I know all of your shame. I know all of your sin, and I have no desire to condemn you. But I do have a desire to expose it, that you will find freedom through it. And here we see the meekness of Christ even in dealing with our own sins. He loves the truth. He is the truth. But thank God, he never separates his love for the truth from his love for us. In fact, he uses the truth out of love for us. This would be a very hard word to say to somebody. But Jesus meekly exposes her life so that he can give her living water. Romans 2.4 gives us a beautiful uh, picture of what Jesus is doing. It says, Do you not know that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So yes, we can speak the truth. We can even say harder words when it's necessary. But we never separate a love for the truth with love for people. And the third thing that meekness is, according to the Bible, it seeks to remain composed amidst emotionally charged situation. Let me say that again. Meekness seeks to remain composed amidst emotionally charged situations. Because meekness loves the truth, it doesn't desire to add to the of just an emotional exchange because it knows, because of our hearts, that typically serves to obscure truth. The moment the walls go up, truth is out the door. It's long in the rearview mirror. So meekness doesn't want to add fuel to that fire. James 1 says it this way, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And the meek person knows that. It knows that there is a time to speak hard words, which Paul will get to, but it knows that your anger won't produce God's righteousness. It's a proper response at times. But the meek person doesn't want to add fuel to that fire. And the reason I think this is such an important aspect of the meekness Paul speaks from is because if we read a couple chapters of ahead without knowing the context, some of the things he says we would not say, that sounds very meek. That would not be the response. But we need to know Paul's heart here. And we see this played out in chapters 11 and 12. Paul is having this tension because he doesn't want to have to engage in the way that these false teachers were engaged, but he felt compelled to. And he says this, I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool, so that I too may boast a little. What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Then chapter 12, I have been a fool. You forced me to it. For I ought to have been commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. See, this is a torn man. He entreats them by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. But because of these outrageous claims being lodged against them, and the Corinthians entertaining them, he says, I'll speak as a fool then. But this is not how the Lord would speak. And you have pushed me to it. I'm not inferior to these teachers, even though I am nothing. You see the tension of the meekness in the Christian life with dispute from time to time. In John 8, we get a picture of Jesus 
refusing to get stirred up in a very emotionally charged situation. And this, what's happening here, is some Jews had caught a woman in the act of adultery, it says. And they dragged her to Jesus, probably partially naked, totally ashamed. And they say this to Jesus. They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This, they said, to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. And then look at Jesus' response. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Can you imagine this scene? A crowd of Jewish Pharisees ready to stone a woman caught in adultery. And Jesus is not going to enter into that type of debate because he loves the truth. And he's not going to obscure it. He's going to wait for the right moment to speak a soft word that pierces right to their hearts. And a few verses later, we get that. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. It's an amazing picture of Jesus refusing to add fuel to that fire. Meekness is confident enough in the truth to remain composed even when emotions are running high. uh, Meekness has a desire for the truth to be seen and displayed in all of its non-condemning beauty. Jesus ends that story with saying, Has no one condemned you? Neither do I condemn you. But go and sin no more. This is meekness. So given the hopefully more biblically informed portrait of meekness, the question must be asked of all of us. Are we meek? Are you meek? Would those around you, especially those whom you disagree with, characterize you as kind and gentle and humble, even when you do have to say a harder word? Do they sense that you love them? You don't just love the truth, but you love them, and that's the whole reason you're speaking the truth to them. And that's not, of course, going to mean that everybody's going to take everything you say perfectly, and you're not going to be misunderstood. Jesus was very misunderstood. But, as a rule, would people see you as meek, as gentle? And this is definitely an area where the Lord has had to work on me after I started to really get more serious about the idea of Jesus being Lord of my life. In a sense, I felt called that I, uh, by God to, to be the doctrine police for everybody around me. And I was, some of it, I, I will say, it was birthed from a good place, but man, so much of it came through the filter of the pride in my heart. And about that time, in the grace of God, I started reading a book by Jim Elliott called The Shadow of the Almighty. Uh, Jim Elliott was a great missionary who died at the age of 28 by the people he was bringing the gospel. His wife, Elizabeth Elliot, uh, compiled a collection of many of his letters. And there is this one letter in the shadow of the Almighty. This is a time when Jim was in seminary. And one of his frustrations was it seemed that nobody cared about Christ as much as he did. He was passionate about the gospel as he was. And he was so frustrated by this. And then he went to go spend uh, a weekend with his dad. And he wrote to this, uh, these words to his uh, widow. Um, after that time, he said, I blush to think of, of things I said, as if I knew something about what Scripture teaches. I know nothing. My father's religion is of a sort which I have seen nowhere else. His theology is wholly undeveloped, 
but so real and practical a thing that it shatters every system of doctrine I have seen. And then this line just jabbed me. He cannot define theism, but he knows God. He cannot define theism, but he knows God. And this was such a helpful and humbling word for me. Just because the Lord has given you a gift or a specific insight does not mean you have the monopoly on God. There are those who might not speak the same Christian vernacular, but are light years ahead of you and me. My grandpa is a perfect example. We would probably disagree on some things doctrinally, but trust me, I will sit at the feet of my grandpa any day of the week. I'm not going to seek to teach my grandpa. He is light years ahead of me, and it has caused me, hopefully, in some regard, to become a little more meek and hopefully a little more helpful. Uh, J.I. Packer, in his great book, Knowing God, says it this way, A little knowledge of God is worth more than a great deal of knowledge about God. A little knowledge of God is worth far more than a great deal of knowledge just about God. So the reason I've taken such an extended period of time on this one word is because I, I really do feel, as Christians, this is an area that we need to work on. Even in disagreement, even when things like in the past couple weeks, the whole Planned Parenthood thing coming to the surface, are we meek? Now, we should respond. We should be outraged by evil. We should have a voice, and we should actively seek to push back the darkness. But as Christians, we must never condemn individuals. That's never our call to condemn anybody. We hate evil. We work to push it back. We expose darkness, but we are not the judge. We are not the judge. And so we need to check our hearts. Are we meek even in that, or are we condemning? Christians are never called to condemn individuals. And plus that, going forward in the letter, I want us to hear Paul's heart as we move into some of this tougher terrain, some of this more forceful language, which we see just in the next verses, verses 2 and 3 of the text from today. Paul writes, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. One of the greatest tricks of the enemy, friends, is to make us forget that there is a war raging all around us. Right now, there is a spiritual war raging. And one of the tactics of the enemy is to make us forget that. And that's why perpetual distraction and even success can be deadly. Because it numbs us to the reality that we are at war. There is a war being raged for the souls of men. This is the point Paul is making. There is a war being raged for the souls of men. God is real. Satan is real. Demons are real. Angels are real. Good is real. And evil is real. These are real realities that are more true than the pews you're sitting on. There's a war being raged for the souls of men. And Paul here is calling the Corinthians back to this reality because we need to remember that in Corinth, there was a very high stock put on being a great rhetorician. People would just debate back and forth, and you were seen as a great orator. If you were seen as a great orator, you held the day. But Paul is reminding them, we do not wage war according to the flesh. See, the super apostles would say, look at his frame. He's so weak. They're so small. 
Therefore, the gospel that he, that he preaches is of no account. And Paul is reminding them, that's not the war that we wage. In fact, it's the opposite. God uses what is weak to shame the wise. And that's why he says we are not waging war according to the flesh. Rhetoric and physical powers are not the weapons of our wars, friends. I cannot be clever enough to save you, no matter how much I would like to be. That's not the war that we're waging. And he goes on to the next verse and says, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Because it's a spiritual war, we need spiritual weapons. So what are the weapons of this war, and this is by way of conclusion where we're going to spend, spend the remainder of our time. Paul doesn't detail them here, but luckily the Bible's a thick book. And if you go to Ephesians, Paul gives us a list of our weapons of war. I'm going to read from Ephesians 6, verses 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. So we're going to look at four of our weapons that Paul details for us here. The first one being faith. Verse 16. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, which extinguishes the flaming darts of the enemy. This text tells us, friends, that all of us have bullseyes on our backs. There is an enemy who is shooting darts at you. Do we think like this in our day-to-day life? Do I think like this? Or do I just see discouragement or depression or anxiety as just natural psychological phenomena? This verse would smash that, saying there is a spiritual war waging. And ironically, the idea of having faith is one of the easiest things to forget about Christianity. This idea that you actually have to have faith because it seems so obvious, but I find myself so often forgetting I actually need to have faith from time to time. And a huge tactic of the enemy is to make us even forget about the most obvious things, that you need to take up the shield of faith. And this is why we need community so bad. Because just being together encourages us and it strengthens our faith. I even saw that this week. I'm always amazed. I had a lunch with a, with a brother from the church, and I left feeling so much stronger in my faith just by having been in his presence. This is why we need to come together. This is why if you're a community group leader or a community group host, you are doing an amazing work for the kingdom just by opening up your home. This is a bastion of faith strengthening, and we need this so bad. Oftentimes, you'll hear about, like at war, especially World War I, 
when in the trenches, the soldiers would sit back to back. That way they could see the entire perimeter around them. And they would have each other's backs. And since two of them were together, they could look out for the other. And this is what it's like in the Christian life. We are to look out for each other because our backs are so often exposed. And we need to draw the spirit, the uh, shield of faith. Listen to these sobering words from our Lord in Luke 22. This is right before the Apostle Peter is going to betray Christ. It says this. This is Jesus speaking. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus knows that our weak. He even says it here, the Apostle Peter, your faith will fail you, but I've prayed for you. So when you're strong again, strengthen your brothers. This is a beautiful example of Christian community. If your faith feels strong, it's not just for you, but it's so you can strengthen your brothers and sisters around you. If your faith feels weak, find a brother or sister who you know to be a solid believer who has gone ahead of you and ask for help. Ask them to encourage you. This is by design. So we have faith, and the second one is prayer. Verse 18, it says, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. You want to make a Christian feel guilty? It's easy. Ask them how their prayer life is. Right? I know it makes me feel guilty. I know prayer... Concentrated prayer is a real challenge for me. It's so hard to close down, not close down your mind, but just stop all the noise. And the enemy knows this as well, and so he tries to keep us from prayer. This is just a quick tip. One of the best things, most helpful things you can do when you pray is the uh, do not disturb button. Just put it on, because so many times I am distracted by a text that comes through. And that's not a coincidence. I'm not saying there's a demon behind every text, of course. But I'm saying that the enemy wants to distract you from prayer. He loves it. He wants to keep you from praying. And one of the ways that we grow in our prayer life, just on the ground, is by being alive to the fact that we are at war, and we have a direct line to the commander-in-chief. And not just that, but he loves us, and he's for us. And at any moment, we can pray to him. And if this is something you struggle in, be of good courage. Because even the disciples had to say, Lord, teach us how to pray. That's a good prayer. That's a good place to start. Lord, teach me how to pray. And prayer is one of those things, too, that the more you pray, the more you pray. it just starts to become a rhythm of your day. Because we all know that prayer works. That's the reason why whenever there's a crisis, our first inclination is to pray. Or to send out an SOS text to all of our friends to be praying for us, and it's good to pray for things, but prayer should not primarily be reactionary. We should steep our lives in a rhythm of prayer. That's why it says praying at all times. Even if you're talking to friends, even unbelieving friends, and they are opening up to you and you feel a prompting, pray for them. Ask them, can I pray for you? People will typically not turn down prayer, even if they don't believe. They'll say, what the heck, throw one up, what, what, what harm could it do? And it'll encourage them, and it'll get you in a rhythm of praying at all times. So let's work on this. Let's go back to the Luke 22 texts and listen to what our Lord says here as well. Simon, Simon, 
behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. I have prayed for you. Even our Lord used prayer as a way to encourage Simon to build up his faith. So we have faith in prayer. The third weapon we have here is the Word of God, verse 17. Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And here, Scripture is referred to as as a sword because it cuts. It's an offensive weapon. Uh, Even in Hebrews 4, it says that it's actually sharper than any two-edged sword because the sword of the Spirit doesn't just cut the flesh. It cuts to the soul. It cuts our hearts, and it silences the enemy. This is why we need to know Scripture. How else do you silence the enemy? When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, every response was Scripture. It is written. It is written. It is written. This needs to be us, Christians. You feel shame? Romans 8. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It is written. This is how we silence the enemy, by knowing Scripture and wielding it as a sword. And I encourage you, and this is a pattern I'm trying to get better at, when we wake up, let's not have our first inclination be to check email or check our social media. Let's start off with Scripture, even if it's just a verse. Because when we do that, we start the battle of the day on the high ground of steeping ourselves in God's word and wielding the truth before all the noise has a chance to get into our heads. Sometimes I often make a practice of, uh, even last night, falling asleep to the audio Bible. And it's not because I'm super holy. It's exactly the opposite reason, because I'm not. And because something happens when I lay down that my mind just starts racing. And all the anxieties of the day and all the things I'm worried about, I can't shut it down. And so when I put on scripture, it helps to quiet some of those voices and remind me of the truth, just let it wash over me. So having a rhythm like this will help us in the war that's raging. And finally, the last and most powerful weapon of our war is the gospel of peace. Verse 15, put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. The reason that the gospel of peace is the most powerful weapon in our war is because it's the good news that the war has already been won. It's the good news that the war has already been won. Yes, we have to fight the battles now, but the victory has been totally secure. And I love how Paul calls it here, the gospel of peace. This is not a social gospel talking about peace on the earth, though it does lead to that. But first and foremost, the gospel of peace is the good news of our peace with God. Because that's our biggest problem. Our biggest problem is not our struggles or our depression or suffering or even Satan. Our biggest problem was we were alienated from God. We were at enmity with God. All of us at one time were. But God, through Jesus Christ, has preached peace. Do you know that, friends? God has spoken peace to you through Christ. And he beseeches you to be reconciled through Christ that you may be at peace. So no matter what's going on in your life, no matter how much the war wages, the final verdict of peace has been spoken. You are at peace with God. And this is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Though we have committed treason against the king of glory, the king of glory came off his throne and pursued us. He chased us down and preached peace to us. This is amazing. And this is the greatest weapon that we have in our war. The gospel is not just the thing that saved you. It is your lifeblood as a Christian. The reminder of peace and reconciliation that you have with God through Christ. And it's through this that we dispense grace to all of our friends. We dispense love. So, by way of conclusion, we're going to respond now to the gospel of peace. The good news of reconciliation. We're going to respond by taking communion where we remember the broken body and the shed blood of our Lord uh, Jesus Christ. Even though God has spoken peace to us, it came in a very hard and violent way. This is why we need to have a theology that makes room for the hard stuff, because the cross was the hardest of all things. The God-man, Jesus Christ, was crucified for you and for me. This is the truth. And so we remember it here at this meal. At prison, we take the bread, which represents his broken body, and we dip it in the wine, which represents his shed blood. If you are a Christian, you are...